Lord, we praise you that even before that time, we already have been, by your grace, revealed in this knowledge. And so we who know that Jesus is Lord, Lord, how then shall we live? How shall we respond to this truth? How should our lives be different because Jesus is Lord? Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond in not only worship, in dependence, but also in faithful service of this Lord, this King, who will one day reign here on earth, but even already and now is seated and reigning in heaven at your right hand. Lord, we pray that you would use this time in your word to equip us, to give us the knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is as your son, that we would be better equipped to be the church of Christ that you call us to be. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. We ask your spirit to fill us, guide us, and lead us into your truths. Lord, may this be more than an intellectual exercise for us, but a spiritual exercise, a spiritual act of worship as we hear and as we respond to your word and the truths of Christ. Thank you, Father, for Jesus and our salvation in him. We praise you and pray that all that would be done in the preaching of your word be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And again, good morning, brothers and sisters. If you have your Bibles, please uh, take with uh, your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews again this morning. Hebrews. And we're going to pick up again where our series in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 14, is where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Okay? And so it's a... Uh, uh, I'm going to be picking up the pace of Hebrews a little bit. We've been kind of going through like one past one sermon out of Hebrews a month so far since we started in December and then January and now February. And so we're going to pick it up and we're going to uh, start picking up our speed and going through this book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 4 to 14. <clears throat> if you are unfamiliar with the book of Hebrews, you were not with us the last uh, couple of times we're in this book, uh, please do uh, uh, listen to or you can watch any of the sermons that are online, uh, podcasts and, and whatnot, and, uh, and, uh, and that you can just give you a little background of this book and uh, help you to catch up and follow us through. Uh, much, of, uh, much of this, uh, this book is a, is a, it's a sermon, so it's driving at a main point, uh, and yet uh, it is rich truths, deep truths, uh, one... Uh, one uh, well-known pastor has kind of likened uh, this passage that we're addressing, but really I, I think of it as true of, of all the Hebrews. The Hebrews is like, a, like an iceberg. <laughs> you know, you read it and you can see just the, the tip of it, and you kind of grasp what you can grasp, but the, and, and it's already magnificent in itself, but there's, there's so much more even that we are just still understanding and, and grasping. And I, as, a, <clears throat> as a Christian for uh, so many years, uh, 
as I've been, as I'm looking at this book, I'm like, wow, I'm learning things and being reminded and of the depths of, of the glories of Christ. And, and I pray that it will be the same for you, <clears throat> that all of us know Christ. We see the tip of the iceberg. But as we study over this book, we're going to see even more uh, of him and understand the, the depths of the glory of Christ. <clears throat> I just want to start this morning with just a question for you to consider. It's really the application question that all of us drive up, dr- uh, we should draw out of the book of Hebrews. It's what, uh, in a sense, what the, uh, the recipients of the book of Hebrews would have asked themselves even as they read this letter uh, that was written to them. And the question for, for you and for them and for all people of all time is that this question is Jesus Christ your Savior and your Lord, the one whom you profess and confess? Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you? Having placed your faith in him, having acknowledged him as Savior and Lord, is, is knowing him, knowing his love for you, is that satisfying for your soul throughout your life? Is he enough for you when things don't go the way you wish? Is he enough for you when you don't have what others around you have? Is he enough for you when you lose the people or the possessions that you might have once possessed in this world? In a fallen world, we, we face a multitude of moments where we experience disappointment. We experience difficulties. We experience trials and tribulations. And in all those moments, there is a temptation for us to question and doubt the sufficiency of Christ for our lives. Is Jesus enough in your disappointments? We all have them. We all are disappointed. We all have expectations, things we expect, things we we hope for, and those things don't happen or things are lost and we're disappointed. And their temptation arises. But even though all those moments, the Lord allows those trials and various trials and tribulations that James points to us for the testing of our faith. That it would cause us to remember and recognize and think about Christ and remember that Jesus is enough. Sadly, though, some of those who profess Christ throughout the ages and even today will turn away from Jesus will turn away to other things to fulfill our soul's desire. This happens when we believe in our minds that somehow Jesus is not enough. In a world of disappointments and a world of pleasures and possessions, followers of Christ face the question, is Jesus Christ enough to satisfy my soul? But I would, I would tell you that the Scriptures teach us that He is not just enough, but He is far better, far better than anything we may turn away our way towards. The letter of Hebrews that we look at this morning was written to professing Christians of Jewish descent who are facing temptation to fall away from Jesus back to Judaism. The author writes a brief word of exhortation by explaining from the Old Testament scriptures how Jesus is better than the Old Covenant practices and rituals that they were tempted to turn back to. And in the first four verses of Hebrews, we learned the last time that Jesus is the final word of God. He is the culmination 
of all of God's promises and revelation to mankind. In verses 3 to 4 of chapter 1, we read that when Jesus had risen from the dead for our sins, he ascended to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And notice particularly verse 4, which is what we want to explain here in our introduction, says that having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Verse 4 really states the, the theme of these first two chapters of Hebrews. As the final word of God, Jesus is much better than the angels. Now in Judaism, angels were regarded highly because they were messengers of God's word. But of course, when we think about messengers of God's word, that really ought not to compare to the one who is God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is exalted on high, having been given, as we learn here in verse 4, the the name above all names, that he's recognized as one who is given the name of all names. I appreciate the last song we sung, because it's a reference to Philippians 2, 9-11, which is that that passage that tells us and reveals to us about what that name is. That why is it that every tongue will confess? Why is it that every knee will bow? And what is it that they will acknowledge about Jesus? Because Jesus is Lord. And not just that Jesus is Master, for sure, that includes that. But Jesus is Lord, that is, that he is divine God. He is the Lord, and it would be a, trans, a, a meaning of the divine name of God. That Jesus is God himself. And that is the miracle of God, that Jesus is the God-man. And it is only because he is God-man that he could come and to die for our sins, to live the, that perfect righteous life. And yet be justified and declared vindicated and so that he might rise from the dead for he bore no sin whatsoever of his own but he bore our sins instead there is only one lord and the angels are his servants and in verses 5 to 14 the author elaborates on how jesus is better than the angels these angels that the these uh these hebrew christians were were t- tempted to turn back to, and because in particular turning back to them because they were the deliverers of the Old Covenant. And the author elaborates here on how Jesus is better by offering three contrasts, three distinctions between angels and Jesus. No less than seven Old Testament references. You kind of look at this, you just look at it in your text and you'll see all those uh, small caps perhaps in your translation, reminding us that these are Old Testament quotes. And it's written because it's a Jewish audience. And the author wants the Jewish audience to understand that Jesus is better than angels. And that's just not an opinion of man. It's not just a subjective feeling, but it is objective reality and objective truth. It's a truth that's revealed from the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures themselves that we see quoted here. Three distinctions is our uh, outline today that demonstrate that Jesus is better than the angels and remind us that Jesus is enough. Remind us to keep trusting, worshiping, following him. Well, let's take a look then at the first distinction that demonstrates that Jesus is better than the angels. And that we find this in verse 5 to 6, that Jesus is the exalted son. Jesus is the exalted son and the angels are not. The angels are not. We read up, we pick up in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, 
I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus Christ, we learn here, is better than the angels because he alone is the exalted son of God. The author here argues for the exalted position of the son in contrast to the angels. He has a different rank than the angels. And the author does this first through two quotes that describe the declaration of Jesus' sonship. The declaration of his sonship in verse we look in verse 5, and notice that it begins with the conjunction for, which indicates and reminds us that what follows is the reason for the superiority of Christ. Why is Christ better than the angels? Well, this is the reason why. This is for, this is true. For this is what Scripture says. The following texts are, are directed to the Son. Notice, this is what God says to the Son. He doesn't say this to angels. He says this to his Son. First of all, from Psalm 2-7 is, a, is our first quote. It says there, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we read that in our call to worship this morning. That messianic psalm, it's a, really an enthronement psalm. And it uh, describes Psalm 2's description of that one day, on that day, that we all long for to see as believers, knowing that Jesus is going to come again. One day he will be enthroned, on the th- enthroned as the messianic king. And where on that day... As he is enthroned and recognized before all the world, God will declare of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But interestingly, in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, I don't have it up as a passage, but you can write that down and look it up later on. Acts 13, 33, there Paul is used, it quotes this actual verse, this phrase, as being fulfilled in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Although Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is eternally the Son of God. It is somehow, as Paul explains, in his resurrection, and you can, and when we, oftentimes when we talk about the resurrection, we're really talking about the whole aspect of his death, his life, death, and resurrection, his incarnation, uh, crucifixion, and resurrection altogether. But it's in his resurrection that in that moment when God raised him from the dead, God declared in a very tangible way, in a demonstrable way, in a visible way, that this one who is raised up is none other than his son. For only, for all of David's sons died when they, and never rose from the dead. But when this son of David, who also happens to be the son of God, died, he came back to life. And of course, we know that that's significant, not only because he's declared the son here, but in the next verse, Psalm uh, that it's mentioned, I will be a father to him, he shall be a son to me, is a quote from 2 Samuel 7, 14. And you all know this is the Davidic covenant. We've mentioned this so many times throughout the, well, throughout our various sermons. That there in that Davidic covenant, God promises to David that a son would come from him, a seed of David would come from him. And, and he may have thought that, well, maybe it's my son Saul, maybe it's some other son. But God says of that to, of to David that he would raise up a descendant of his whose kingdom would be established forever. How can there be a throne of a king forever if they all die? They can't. And the only way that a throne of one of David's sons could last forever is if they don't die. Or in the case of Jesus, they do die, he dies, 
but he is raised again. And it is in this way that God visibly declares that this is, Jesus is, his son. That's what the author is trying to say. This, you remember his resurrection. It's not just that he's a son, but he's shown to be the son. He's declared to be the son by the fact of his resurrection from the dead. And that, though, and he has, having been raised from the dead, he has there also returned to the right hand of the Father. We saw that in verse 3. No angel is ever enthroned at the, as the Davidic king. No angel sits there at the right hand of God the Father. No angel is declared God's son. Jesus alone has that special, it's not, just the, it's, it's not just a relational aspect that's emphasized, but it's a positional aspect, it's a rank, it's a priority aspect. And to further show this exalted position of the son over the angels, we see this, the demonstration of his sonship in verse 6. Demonstration, verse 6. Verse 6 begins with this, uh, verse six, we, uh, begins with this um, temporal clause there that says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world. And we all know that Jesus' birth was his first coming, his incarnation. That was the first time. But this verse reminds us of something else that the Scripture teaches all throughout the Scriptures, particularly New Testament, that Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is going to come again. And that's, that's, that's uh, you, can, you can bank on that. Okay? You, you wanna, if you're someone you get five, uh, anyways, you can, don't bet on that, but you know, it is true. And uh, this, at his second coming, he will come and he will rule and reign over on the, th- on the throne of David's kingdom in Jerusalem. It's going to be in Jerusalem. And it will be a reign over all the world. But notice that what, how he's referred here in verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world. That, that phrase, first, that word firstborn is a, is a rich term. Um, and, and it emphasizes the, the superiority in rank of Jesus. Paul would write, the Apostle Paul would write in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus is the, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, when he says firstborn from the dead, it doesn't mean that he was the firstborn, in a sense, chronologically from the dead because lots of other people, Lazarus, for instance, rose from the dead before Jesus. And so from that verse, we learn that this term firstborn has, has multiple meanings, possible uh, uh, meanings, but in, this, in that text and wherever Jesus calls the firstborn, it is emphasized a rank. Because uh, while others were raised to life to die again like Lazarus did, Jesus is superior, is of a higher rank, because he was raised from the dead never to die again. That is Jesus. He is the firstborn from, among, from the dead. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn so that all would worship him and give him the first place that he deserves. Jesus is superior. And one day he will return to earth, and in that day God says of him, notice in verse, at the, verse 6, this is what God says, when that day comes, when he reigns, sits on David's throne, he will say, let all the angels of God worship him. This uh, quote is taken from the Septuagint version, the Greek version of Psalm 97, verse 7. Psalm 97, so there's a lot of verses here. Many of them are not very familiar to us, but if you look there, uh, it's, a, it's a Greek translation of the Psalm 97, verse 7. A psalm that describes, again, the reigning of this messianic king. Uh, and in that reign, it described that this king will be worshipped by angels. 
by angels. They will bow down and worship him. The fact that they will bow down and worship him shows that, of course, his exalted position. It's not that the Son does not worship the angels. It's the angels worship him, the Son. Angels, in fact, are never worshipped, are they? In Revelation 22, as you, uh, in other places, we see instances like this, where after having described the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and earth to the apostle John, John records in verse 8 and 9 these significant words. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. See, this is, this is the idea that it's the angels who are revealing God's truth, and, and it's because it's God's truth. It's such a reverence for the angels that the, John immediately wants to bow down and worship the angel. But is that right? Verse 9, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. What a, what a humble, these servants, mighty creatures, supernatural beings. They are, they are of, of, of have a, um, such power and, and glory, and yet when man, you know, man tries to worship them, they correct them, he, they rebuke him, John in this case, and tell him to worship God. God is the only one who is worshipped. But here we see that in this quote, that let all the angels worship him, is that God tells all the people to, let on all the angels to worship his son. It's a rec- this is a, John is a reminder to us that the Son is to be worshipped because He is God. He is the Son of God. He is one who shares the same nature and the same, uh, the same nature of God. He is equal to God the Father because He is the Son of God. And so, therefore, if angels worship the Son, then what should we do? If we're tempted to worship angels as the, uh, or to turn back to angels... Or some believe that it was simply to even to, to recognize, to just simply say under pressure because of the persecution that, well, Jesus was, he's really not the son of God. He's just another, just a, uh, an angel instead. If we're to, tempted to turn back to those things, then remembering, though, that if angels worship him, if he is the elevated to the right hand of God the Father, if he's the, the son, declared the son by his resurrection from the dead, then what should we do instead? We, we ought to worship him. We ought to recognize him. This is the one whom all of scriptures have pointed to. So let us worship him because he is the son and the angels worship him. We should worship him. Jesus Christ is superior to the angels because of his eternal sonship, because of his, or because of his exalted sonship. Secondly, he is better than the angels, we're going to learn in verses 7 to 12, because Jesus is the eternal son, the eternal son. I'll read all, uh, all these, uh, these six verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7 to 12. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your commandments. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. Jesus Christ, we learn here, is better than the angels because he is the eternal Son of God. Whereas the first point focused on the priority, the the rank of the Son of God, here it describes the eternality, the, the nature of the Son of God. In verse 7 to 12, the author contrasts the nature of angels with the nature of the Son. And we see this in verse 7 where God speaks first of the nature of the angels. The angels. What's the nature of the angels? And we see that in verse 7 he quotes again from another psalm, Psalm 104 this time, Psalm 104 verse 4. And then the 104th psalm describes basically God's creation and care over all his world, over all the creation. And uh, this verse describes in, in that, in that God's, describing God's creation, it describes there how God also created the angels. The angels, though in a sense will exist and are eternal forever, they had a beginning point. They're not eternal like God the Father who has always existed, but they had a beginning point and they were created at one point. Three observations can be made about these angels here just in that, in that, in that verse 7. First of all, they are created. They are, God is the one who he makes his angels. He makes his ministers. They're made by the Lord God. Secondly, they are, notice that these who are made by God are also servants of God. They're his angels. They're his ministers. They belong to him because he's created him, created them. And, and if you think about it, since he created us, we belong to him as well. Thirdly, we might notice also, that make observation, that description here of them as winds or as a flame of fire indicate their, their mutable nature. They, they can appear as, as physical beings, as men, or they may move like wind or spirit, spirit, they're spirit beings. They're like fire, they can move around like fire, flames of fire. They are, have this ability, they're full of just glorious light, uh, and they can appear in many of these ways, and there's this immutability to them. And so God made, God made them in this way. This is the nature of angels. Now, in contrast to the nature of angels, verse 8 to 9 then focus us on the nature of the Son. Or verse 8 to 12 focus on the nature of the Son. And this is what God says about the Son in verse 8 and 9. Two, here, two Old Testament verses are quoted again. One in verses 8 to 9, one in verses 10 to 12. First in 8 to 9, God acknowledges him as the eternal uh, Sorry, as the eternal, the nature of the son as the eternal king. Um, I lost track of where my PowerPoint was. He's the eternal king. It wasn't matching my sermon notes. The quotation here uh, is taken from Psalm 45, verse 6 to 7. 
and describes basically the reign of God's messianic king. You just think, man, what? I didn't know there was that many psalms that describe the messianic reign of the king. It is a, it is a key theme where, uh, that we do see in the, in the Bible. Yesterday we had Pastor Ray's ordination, and one of the, he was asked, what are some themes that we see throughout? Uh, and he, he chose to focus on this idea of a, of a, of a king, this reign of a king, this kingdom, the theme uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament, or in the scriptures. And then Psalm 45, 6, and 7, where he's described as, uh, you'll notice, first of all, he is referred to, God is, but of the Son, he says, that is, that God says about the Son, he says, what does he say of him? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's, that's a very significant statement, because it's God is saying, by divine inspiration here of the author of Hebrews, he is saying that God in that verse is speaking of the Son, and he's calling him God. God is reckon, declaring Jesus Christ to be God. That's, that's just reinforcing his deity. And then while that's significant, what these verses reaffirm is that God had, uh, basically what God has demonstrated in his Davidic covenant, that his, that his descend, that David's descendant, this messianic descendant, would have a kingdom, a throne, that would be forever and ever. It would basically be an eternal Kingdom. It would never come to an end. We know all the kingdoms of the earth, they come and go. Some have lasted a long time, but many have come and gone. And our kingdom of the United States of America has been here for just a short period of time, maybe some 200 or so years. And it, will, it is possible, just like many other kingdoms of our world, will come and go as well. Especially we allow random balloons to fly over our country, as we've seen of late. That's been funny. Um, but God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, will never come to an end. Never come to an end. He will be, and he will never come because he is the eternal king. His, and what's more, as, as this verse kind of further on elaborates the nature of this kingdom, is that God, this kingdom that he will, come, he will rule over is one that will be characterized by righteousness and joy. We're reminded then of, of uh, the prophecies of, 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 who, of him who is going to come and, his, the, and Isaiah that his kingdom is going to be one of peace. It's going to be righteousness and justice. You know, all the world, every government, we lo- everybody longs for a government that would be full of peace, righteousness, and, and joy, really. But the fact is, I don't think anybody's content about their government. We, we're thankful to God for them. God, they use, they're used by the Lord. But there's always this discontent because none of them are perfect. They're, all, they, they're, they're ruled and, and led by, by sinful men and women. And, but one day when, when Christ comes and he establishes his government and his kingdom, it will be one of righteousness. And it will be a kingdom of joy. The son is the eternal kingdom, is the eternal king. But not only is he the eternal king, verse 10 and 12, God also speaks to, of him as the eternal creator. He's the eternal creator. The Son is and now eternal in that he's the king, eternally king. He will be the eternal creator. This, uh, these verses here in verse 10 to 12 are a quote from Psalm 102, verse 25 through 27. And these verses, once again, describe the Son as the creator of the heavens and the earth. Uh, something referred to earlier uh, back in chapter 2, through whom also he made the world, in verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. So similar to verse 8, God's deity is, uh, or the Lord, the Son's deity 
is again acknowledged as he is addressed as what? Uh, God addressed him as his son, and he says, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. So Jesus is explicitly called, attributed as being called Lord by God the Father here in verse uh, 10 uh, through 12. Again, his deity is evidenced. But verse 11 is what I want to focus on, is that though creation will one day perish, though he's the, uh, the one who created all things, and all creation will perish one day, but in contrast to creation, Jesus will remain. Jesus will remain. He will, he will roll up creation like an old garment one day. He's going to roll it up. He's going to create a new heavens and new earth. But Jesus will remain. He does not change. And we see this emphasized in later on in Hebrews, in Hebrews 13.8, that well-known passage uh, that we've many quote, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What we see here is in the eternal king and the eternal creator that Jesus is, is the doctrine of the eternality of God. And it is, it is a doctrine that is uh, basically tied together with the immutability of God, that God does not change. Because one of the attributes, because if he is unchanging in his, if he is, because he's unchanging in his beings, in his being and attributes, then it also implies that he wouldn't be unchanging in the attribute of his existence, that God exists. Because he's immutable, he doesn't change. He who exists has always existed and will always exist. For if he ceased to exist, or he became, or even if he came into existence at some point, would show that he is not eternal God. But the fact is that he is eternal. He's at folks as the one who's same yesterday, today, for forever. And when we contrast what God has said about His Son with what God has said about the angels, we then see that the Son is is separate, a set apart from creation. He's not part of the creation, but He's the Creator. He's not a servant, but he's a king. He's not immutable, but immutable and eternal. Last but not least, he's not an angel, but he's God. He's the eternal son of God, recognized as such. And he's equaled with God in his essence and far superior, far greater than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels because he is the exalted son of God and he is the eternal son of God. Hebrews concludes for us, in verse 13 and 14, with one final distinction between Jesus Christ and the angels. And we see this in verse 13 and 14. Jesus is the enthroned son. Jesus is the enthroned son. Let's read verse 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said? Again, this is that same, same rhetorical question as he started off verse 5 with, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Jesus is better than the angels because of his enthronement at the right hand of the Father, where he rules with all authority. Now this stands out and differs from point one, where point one, as I've said, it focuses on the rank and, and the, uh, the rank of, of the, and the position of the Son versus the rank of the angels. Here in verse 3, the, the focus is on the activity of the Son versus the activity of the angels. It's what, it's what he's doing right now. In verse 13, we see, what's the Son doing right now? Well, of course, Scriptures reveal that he's doing some other things. But there's a, one thing that's emphasized about Jesus where, where he is right now. 
And we learn in verse 13 that right now the, the son is seated. The son is, the son is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He return, uh, there are no angels to, and we see this, uh, a reference by a quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. No angels has ever God said these words to. Psalm 110 is a very well-known psalm. We learned, reminded yesterday uh, that Pastor Ray's ordination that uh, this is one of the most quoted uh, psalms in, in the New Testament. It's, uh, Jesus quotes it uh, of himself to emphasize his deity, that he is not only the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And, but uh, never, having said that, the focus here is not necessarily at that, on that focus. But right here, in the, the part that's quoted focuses on the fact that the son Jesus is seated right now. He had already, back in verse 3, we read that having made perfection sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Remember that verse 3? And so here we see again that he is, he is seated. He's quoted as, being, God is saying to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is God's words to his son. And so this emphasis on the fact that he's seated. What does that mean to be sit here at my right hand? First of all, there's a position on that, that definitely at the right hand of God the Father, there is that position of authority. But at the right hand is not only, and it's a position of great honor. And he has all authority to rule as king of kings. But the focus is the fact that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father really emphasizes that his work is done, that he's at rest. He doesn't have to be standing. Everybody else around the throne, if you ever go to see those pictures of royal you know, uh, movies, got some king somewhere, uh, basically everybody is, are they seated around? No, only the people like maybe his royal family, you know, they're seated, right? But you see all the, the guards, are they seated? No, they're usually standing. The, the prime minister or whoever, the first, first person, the, the counselor of the, of the king, are they seated? No, they're usually standing. It's because there's this focus that when you're standing, you're ready to serve whatever the king asks you to do. And so in the throne room of God, Jesus, unlike the angels that are, well, they're, they're kind of, uh, they're floating, they're around, they're hovering, but Jesus is seated. It shows that he's, he's not, he's, he's not going to have to be sent off anywhere to do anything else because he's already accomplished what he was sent to do the first time. He doesn't have anything to do. In fact, he just simply, God tells him, the folks here is, just sit here and wait. Wait, in fact, God the Father is going to do something. God the Father says to him, just wait here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. As the ultimate, and so the fact that he's seated to wait there for his eventual return to rule over the kingdoms of the earth, Jesus is seated there because he's already finished the work that he was sent to do. And the work that he was sent to do could be described as him coming to be the ultimate high priest. And when he came as the ultimate high priest, this, we can think of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, for instance. Uh, we'll look, you can look there, we'll quote that in a little bit. But as the ultimate priest, high priest, Jesus came and he, he, made, he came and offered a sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own life. And he came and made it as an atonement for the sins of the world. And when he offered himself, because he is the son of God, he offered himself once and for all, so that he didn't have to keep offering himself like the priests offered, but his work is finished. And so when he offered himself, and God then raised him from the dead, his work's done. 
He could go. He had already taught the disciples all that they needed to learn. He revealed to them. He'd sent them their, his spirit too, so that the spirit would help them remember and have power to do the work that they're to do. He's, he's seated. He's finished. His work is done. In a, in a, in a sense that no, he doesn't do no, nothing, by the way. He does intercede on our behalf. He's there as our, at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. But his work of atonement is finished. The idea of him being seated is, is emphasized all throughout the book of Hebrews. It's a significant statement. Besides here, as well as in verse 3, we, we see this fact pointed out in, in several places. Um, let's see if I can get there. Oh, I got a little order wrong, but in Hebrews 8.1. Now, the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 8.1 is kind of the, what are the, uh, the key statement of the main point of this book. The main point is that Jesus is this great high priest. And though he's a high priest, he's, he's seated. His work is done. He's offered what, he, he has already offered the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 10.12 now the, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for sins for all time. His work is done. He doesn't have to keep offering another sacrifice for other people's sins, for sins that you and I are going to commit later. It's all time. He's done. And in Hebrews 12, 12, 12 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has sat down because his work is finished. He is the only one who is seated in this position of honor and power, not of any angels. No other angels are seated in heaven like he is. His work is done. He's finished. He's at rest. And one day he's seated there until he will return then he will come to rule and reign over the earth. Now, in contrast to the son who was seated, what about the activity of the angels? What do we learn about them? And we learn back in verse 14 uh, that he is, the angels are sent, are sent, verse 14. The angels are sent. We see that the angels uh, described in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? They're all serving spirits in a sense. They are sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Angels have always and continue to be ministering spirits. They're sent out from the throne of God. God sends them out to do his will, to accomplish his purposes. And what significantly we learn here is that they are sent out on behalf of believers. They're sent out to serve, render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. It's for believers. It's for those who are, who God, the, whom God has chosen, the, the elect. God's going to send out his angels to render service for them, to help them to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. This final verse is oftentimes where some Christians draw the doctrine of uh, Guardian angels, guardian angels, uh, whether, um, you know, 
whether every believer actually has one guardian angel that is always watching over them, constantly guard, watching over them, uh, cannot be concluded with certainty. Maybe there's one angel that's assigned to a bunch of people and that angel can get around, I don't know. Uh, or maybe that different angels at different times and different moments, that it's always possible. But whatever exactly that setup is, God sends his angels out for the service of to minister to those who will inherit salvation. These are believers. What is clear is that God sends his angels out. Their work is not finished. Their work is ongoing. Their work is continuing. There's still work to be done by angels. They're not finished because they're still being sent out. And Jesus, in contrast, possesses authority as enthroned son of God waiting to rule over the earth while the angels are those under authority sent out to serve those who follow the son of God. Jesus is better than the angels because he is the son of God and they are the servants of God. That's the contrast we see. I know, but but think about it, uh, if you will, with me. When I don't know about you, but when I was a young boy, I'd come across the the idea of guardian angels, and I was enthralled by it. I remember I was was thinking about guardian angels, and I'd be in my room, and I'd be, you know, I'd look at the cross that's in my room, and I'd I'd look around, and think, maybe my guardian angel is somewhere right here. I don't know about you, but you know what I started doing? I started, I started praying to my guardian angel. I started talking to my angel. You know. And being angry. I was not a believer then, okay? So please forgive me. For, I, just, I started talking to him. You know, and, oh, you know, well, you know, just whatever I was, I wanted that was on my mind. And that concept, that, it's just this idea that this guardian angel, this belief that there's an angel that's, that's serving around, that's watching or is protecting me. And so therefore, I'm going to talk to him because he's close. And why do we talk to him? Because he's closer than God. God's way up there. Yeah, I know God sent him, but, but this angel's closer to him. So I'm going to talk to the angel. The tendency of what happens when we do that is what eventually we start thinking of the angel as being higher than God. Because I started, I started thinking, who is, who, is near me? who is nearer to me, God or the angel? I would thought God, the angel. But no one is nearer to us than God. His son, and he gives us the spirit that dwells within us. Who should we be talking to? The angel or God? Not the angel, but God, right? And it's so easy to, to, to fall in those, to, to think of angels as being so grand. They're these ministering spirits that are sent out by God. But when we contrast them with the son who is seated and is finished and his work is, is done, our our dependence our, our, should be upon him. Our, our prayers should be directed to him. Our worship should be directed to him. Our, our service should be directed to him. Just if the angels worship him, we should worship him. If the angels serve him, we too ought to worship him. And because our salvation is secure, not because of what the angels do. Our salvation is secure because of what Jesus, the Son, has done. Why would anyone then look to anyone else and that's and this is for those of you who can be think thought like me and think about guardian angels and and just kind of you know start talking to them uh you know talk to god well anyways let's uh wrap it up and get to the conclusion here conclusion jesus is the exalted eternal and enthroned son of god he is greater than the angels uh, in his 
in his, because of his, his rank as the son of God, because of his nature as the eternal son, and because of his activity as the one who has seated and finished his work on the cross. The angels, in contrast, worship him. They continue to serve him. They do not, they, they, they are created by him. They cannot compare to him. And so, therefore, Jesus is better than the angels. And if we ever, we, we look to angels, we look to some, even in our day, we may not think about angels, but we look to other mystical things. Angels, there's something about angels that are just mystical to us. We, we, have a, a, we can be caught up in mysticism and other powers, but there's no other power that we should turn to than Jesus, who is the Son. He is enough for all that we face and need in this world. He is our all-sufficient, ever-present high priest. And so how does, the, three questions for us, just a simple, basically how does the knowledge of these truths affect our worship, our faith, and dependence upon him? Knowledge of the whole universe, will worship the Son impact our worship? Does the knowledge of the Son's eternal nature affect your trust in him? How does the knowledge that the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father shape your service to him? And so these, uh, you can kind of flip those words around. They really are just how do these truths, it's just showing us what, the, what is true of Christ in these passages, how do these truths encourage us in our worship, in our faith, in our service of the Lord, that we would not fall away from him, all right? So let's uh, close uh, in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and these truths, and uh, guide us into your truth. Help us to continue to love Jesus more and worship him and serve him and trust in him, for he is greater than angels and any other powers that we might think we can turn to in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.